Welcome to the Grace Harbor Church Sermon Podcast. Grace Harbor Church is located in Oklahoma City, Oklahoma. For more information, visit our website at ghokc.com. Good morning. Um, Matthew 7, 28. And when Jesus finished saying these things, the crowds were astonished at his teaching. For he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word. Uh, We thank you that we have an opportunity this morning um, to hear from you uh, through your word. Lord, that is is the expectation um, of us this morning. Um, Not that we have unrealistic expectations of you, uh, but that you have told us, um, Lord, in your word that it is sufficient um, and that it is profitable for us. Lord, there are areas in our lives where we need correction, uh, where we need encouragement, um, and and we know that that your word um, speaks about itself um, as the sufficient word of God. And so, Lord, that is our, our position here today, um, and, and so we, we just ask you that you would help us to understand it, because in it, is, life is found um, in relationship and in fellowship with your Son, who the Scriptures speak of, um, life is found. And so help us today, um, as, as we pray often, help us to become the things that we are not, um, help us to, to understand what we do not understand um, and, and Lord, we rely on you um, to do that work in us. We pray these things in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. Amen. We'll have a seat. Thank you for being here this morning. Uh, I'm really excited about the, the next couple of weeks, um, partially because I won't be pulling double duty. Uh, you, you, won't, you won't get as much of me in the next few weeks. And so um, next Sunday, um, Jordan Moore will be preaching. Uh, he preached his first sermon this, this summer. Um, and, and hey, once it's one of those things like, hey, once you're in, you, you, you're in. And so you better, you better be ready to preach your next one too. And so Jordan next week will be sharing with us um, from the word. And then the next Sunday, Thomas will be sharing with us. And then the next Sunday is the first Sunday of Advent. That's wild, isn't it? Um, and so we're just three weeks away from that and really looking forward to to that season. But if you have not yet, um, open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 7. Um, we are in verses 28 and 29, which, as you will notice, um, is the final two verses of Matthew 7 and um, concludes uh, the Sermon on the Mount discourse in Matthew's gospel. Um, you might not believe this, but I was talking to Lindsay yesterday. Uh, you should believe that I was talking to Lindsay. You won't believe what we're talking about. Um, <laughs> We were, we were talking yesterday, and it was one year ago, the last Sunday of November. So in three weeks, a year ago, we started the book of Matthew. Um, we started the book of Matthew on week one of Advent. It, it, it lined up really perfectly because we spent the, fir- the, the four weeks of Advent um, walking through the birth narrative and the genealogy of Jesus. Um, and so that was, that was coming up on one year ago, and I did not realize this part but it was 10 months ago that we started Sermon on the Mount. 
Um, and so I will say that I went back on my notes to the first sermon that I preached on Sermon on the Mount, and I said, we will be in the Sermon on the Mount here for a few weeks, um, and it has been 10 months, um, and that's just the way that I believe that the Word of God often works. Um, we, we, we don't ever get to the end of it, right? Um, we, we don't ever team the, the depths and get to, a, get to an end, but the deeper that we dig, the deeper that we find it is, Amen. Um, and so we, have, we definitely have experienced that as a church. I don't know about you, but I've thoroughly enjoyed and been challenged in studying, um, preaching through the greatest sermon ever preached, Jesus, um, in this Sermon on the Mount. Um, and so um, we first looked, if you remember 10 months ago, it's a long time, lot, lots of life has happened between now and then, then and now. Um, but but we, what we did when we started the Sermon on the Mount is we actually preached these two verses. Um, I don't know if you remember that, but what we did is we actually kicked off our teaching and study through the Sermon on the Mount with these two verses. Um, and just so you know, I have not recycled that sermon. Um, that would have been the easy thing because you've probably already forgotten it. Um, but just so you know, we have not recycled that sermon. In fact, it's amazing to read through that sermon and to see just how much the Lord has shown us in his word since that time. There's lots of things that I said then that was like, man, I'm glad that I am not uh, sufficient for these things. Um, and so uh, this is not a recycled sermon. We're going to look at it now being on the tail end of the, the sermon. But what we did was, is we started with these two verses at the beginning of the sermon to, to look ahead for how we ought to view and hear what Jesus was about to say. Um, that that w- even though Matthew at one time was writing this out um, and, and was kind of writing progressively through this book in his, own, in his own time, that now we have the whole counsel of the Word of God. And so we can see the end um, even before we get started. And so what we saw in the end of this sermon was that there was a group of people who responded um, to the sermon of Jesus in a particular way. And so 10 months later, church family, you have heard what Jesus has to say in his sermon. Um, and now we find ourselves back in this text um, in its intended order. And so what Matthew chapter 7, verse 28 and 29 is doing is it is Matthew, the writer of this gospel, Matthew recording the response of those who heard the teaching of Jesus. Um, that's it. That's the, that's the point of the text today. Uh, the point of the text is simply this, is that there is, is a record of the crowd's response. Um, and so, so far in the sermon of Jesus, we've been able to kind of dig deeply into it, but Matthew is very intentionally, and you gotta kind of see this in this text, he's very intentionally letting us know that the crowd responded in a particular way to what they just heard. Hey, that is not an insignificant record. Um, that is not in any way an insignificant record. So we're gonna see that this morning. Jesus has preached and now there's a response. But recall, like we, we need to do a little bit of review over the whole book because it will help us see what Matthew might be doing in these two verses. So, so recall in your minds, if you will, and if, if you weren't here, that's fine, we'll catch you up. But recall what we highlighted when we began um, Matthew one year ago this month. And specifically, what I'm saying is, is that this gospel, Matthew's gospel, is likely written with a Jewish audience in mind, um, that he's writing to fellow Jews. Now, that does not mean that it has no application for us. 
We just need to know that there was a man who wrote this letter for a particular primary purpose, and that was to, to convince a Jewish audience that Jesus was the one that they had waited for, um, that Jesus was the long-awaited Messiah. Um, and In fact, the gospel opens in chapter 1. I mean, the very beginning, chapter 1, is Matthew tracing the lineage of Jesus back to David and back to Abraham, both of those being two key figures in the Jewish faith, right? Two, two people that, that a Jewish audience would have said, I know them. They are really important to us. We, need, we, we, we better listen to what he has to say here because Abraham and David are two figures that are part of the, the, the Messiah that we're waiting for. And so Matthew is writing some decades, likely, I don't know exactly when, but Matthew is writing some decades after the life of Jesus. And, and I think that the, 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 the thing that he's providing is a, is a provocative narrative claiming that Jesus is that long-awaited Messiah. This would have been really hard for some people to believe. The Jewish, the Jewish people were, were waiting for a particular kind of king, for a particular kind of deliverer, and, and Matthew is saying, hey, this Jesus Christ, he's the one. He's the Savior. He's the Messiah that you have been waiting for. And so catch what happens through these first four chapters. We're not going to read all of them, but I'm going to summarize for you. Through these first four chapters of Matthew's gospel, Matthew not only includes this lineage, but he also, if you look deeply and you kind of understand what he's doing, he provides the response and the reaction of an incredibly diverse range of people to this person of Jesus. And so, like, let's just kind of fly through that. Matthew says that there were Gentiles that responded to, in some way to Jesus. And who were those Gentiles? They were the wise men. They responded in worship, right? They brought gifts. They wanted to worship this king. And so, so Matthew is saying, hey, listen, Jews, there, there's a lot of people who are responding to Jesus. And they didn't all respond positively, right? We're going to see that. So, so Gentiles, there's, Matthew even records the response of a pagan, King Herod. Herod is responding to this figure, Jesus of, of Nazareth. Um, Matthew records the response of prophets, John the Baptist, who's proclaiming um, that, that, uh, that Jesus is the one that we've waited for. Matthew records the response of the Holy Spirit to Jesus. In Matthew chapter, I believe that's Matthew chapter 2, when the, when the Spirit as a dove descended upon the baptism of Jesus. Matthew records the response of God the Father, who by the way, validates who Jesus is. God the Father himself, it, with his own words, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. So Matthew is kind of, kind of starting to, to collect all of the resources and say, hey, I, Jews, you kind of have a choice here in how you respond, but I just want to let you know how some of these other figures are responding. Pagans, Gentiles, prophets, the Holy Spirit, God himself, and then Matthew goes further in Matthew chapter 4 and even shows an interaction that Jesus has with the devil, Satan himself, which shows us that at some level, Satan thinks something about this person, Jesus. And so, again, all of these, these people that, that Matthew is collecting these stories of, they act and they react 
in response to Jesus coming on the scene in history. So Matthew shows us the the cataclysmic response in both the historical and the spiritual realms. Historically, hey, this is how people are responding on the ground. And then spiritually, this is how the heavens are responding to who Jesus is. God himself, our Father, the Spirit himself, the Father. The devil even comes to tempt this person, Jesus. And so here's what I'm trying to build for us and just see leading up to these two verses at the end of Matthew 7, that there's no denying, that there is no denying at least how the biblical authors assume and anticipate how we are to view and respond to this figure, Jesus. And let me just say, it's more than with just mere interest and intrigue. He's he's setting this up that, hey, Mere interest and mere intrigue about this person is not the way that at least the immediate crowd of people who Jesus encountered responded. Does that make sense? Am I making sense? Am I clear? I, was, I wrote this kind of late one night and I had to read it again and had to take something out. But Matthew's showing us that something very deeply has shifted. Jesus has popped on the scene and something's different. Something has shifted. Something has happened. And so Matthew himself holds nothing back in who it is that he claims Jesus to be and how he expects the hearer to respond. In fact, after introducing us to this lineup of people, here's, here's, we're getting closer. We're getting closer. You're like, okay, why are we reviewing all this stuff? We're getting closer, okay? So stick with me. After introducing us to this lineup of people in the first four chapters, Matthew then records the words of Jesus and allows Jesus to speak for himself. You see that? So Matthew's collecting kind of this, this, this crowd of, of people that responded, and then what Matthew gives us in, in the way that he highlights his gospel, in the way that he records his gospel, he says, okay, now I'm just going to let the person that all these people have been responding to speak for himself, and let's see what we find. All of the characters that we have heard from so far make claims either by their words or actions who they expect, either, either, either accept or fear Jesus to be. Herod feared Jesus, right? He feared because Jesus was a threat to his throne, right? Um, But you've got other people who responded, and there's something about this person that we must worship him. But over these last 10 months, we've not focused so much on the, 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 the collection of characters. We have heard who it is that Jesus claims himself to be. Isn't that amazing how this gospel is written? That we can see that, hey, there is a global response to Jesus coming on the scene, even to where Jesus himself speaks of who it is that he claims to be. And so Jesus, through this, if if you remember through our study in this, Jesus refers to himself as the fulfiller of the law. I mean, he he says that about himself. I've come to fulfill the law, not to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. And then he goes on to interpret the law. So not only is he fulfilling, but he is interpreting the law in the way that the religious leaders could never interpret. Jesus says, this is the real interpretation of the law. And so Jesus speaks all through this sermon with a kind of authority that is not derived nor given to him by any man. Hey, here's something really important that we need to realize in this room today. That any authority that any man on this earth or woman has is completely derived from someone or something else. It is a completely derived authority, Um, an authority that is given either by people that God has put in place to give it 
but ultimately by God himself. Um, our, elder, our elder team, our candidates, the, the, the people who are walking through this really long, drawn-out process of our elder process, we don't just throw elders into the mix, but, but our elders right now are walking through a book called The Shepherd Leader. Um, and it talks about how we as leaders are to shepherd the church, shepherd the people of God. Um, and one of the very first chapters in this, I would commend this book to you very, very highly. But because one of the very first chapters in this book is all about authority. And it talks about derived authority and given authority in the way that Jesus always speaks is not one who's deri- who has derivative authority, but one who is the authority himself. He is the authority. And so Jesus has spoken with authority over the law. Not only does he fulfill it, he interprets it. So church family, as we enter into a really potentially tumultuous week, right, politically, as we think about authority, but and even as we think about authority in our own lives, any authority that you have in your home, in your job, is authority that has been given to you by God, and you must steward that well. But Jesus here, that's a little bit of a rabbit trail, Jesus here is making sure that we know that his authority is not derived from anyone. He is himself the son of God. He is God himself. So Jesus refers to himself even in this as the one for whom men will suffer. Isn't that amazing? Look at, look at Matthew 5.11. Matthew 5.11. I didn't catch this early on. This is one of those things that I've caught since. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on what? My account. Jesus is proclaiming that you, I am the one for whom you will suffer. I am the one for, um, and so that's in 5.11. Jesus also, like we talked about last week, refers to himself as the one who ultimately will judge, right? Matthew chapter 7, verse 23. What do we see there? Matthew 7, 23. And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. And so in this context chapter of judgment, Jesus, it kind of culminates in this time where Jesus proclaims, I am the judge, I am the one who will judge righteousness. I am the one who will do these things. And so, my friends, do not miss who Matthew claims Jesus to be. Do not miss who the Spirit claimed Jesus to be in simply descending upon the baptism of Jesus. Do not miss who pagans fear that Jesus is. Do not miss who the Father claims Jesus to be, my beloved Son in whom he is well pleased. Hey, church family, this is one that might be a little bit more frightening. Don't miss who the devil shows us that he believes Jesus to be. The devil knows his time's limited, right? He's trying to, trying to dethrone Jesus in Matthew 4, and he is, sorry, buddy, doesn't work. And then most importantly this, maybe not most importantly, but most immediately this, don't miss who Jesus claims himself to be. Jesus claims himself over and over again. You'll hear all the time, well, Jesus never claimed to be God. Jesus never claimed to be, he, he did. He did, and we, we can get into that another time. So we arrive at these final two verses. Here we are, we've caught up. We arrive at these final two verses of Matthew 7, and we're introduced to a whole, this is why I did all this background, because another group of people come on the scene. We, we, we didn't even talk about the disciples, but we'll, we'll kind of mix them in with who we see here. Matthew is building this collection of people who are responding to Jesus. And in Matthew 7, 28 and 29, it's the crowds, the crowds. So we see that there are crowds who have now gathered around. Recall that Matthew 5, 1, Matthew chapter 5, verse 1, says that Jesus 
taught his disciples, right? His, his disciples came to him and he sat and he taught them. Um, that means that either while Jesus was teaching, more people began gathering around. So it either means that while he was teaching, more people gathered around, or that this crowd was there at the beginning, and though Matthew didn't mention them at first, he now wants to make sure we know that there were more people there, and they responded in a particular way to Jesus. So there's a crowd of people who it seems to be more than just the disciples. In fact, there may even be some Pharisees and religious leaders sprinkled in there based on kind of what some of the things that we see Jesus do and say throughout this sermon. We don't know that for sure. But I don't know about in your Bibles, um, but in my Bible, the very first words that are not in red in nearly three chapters show up here. So, so the, the, the sermon, the, the kind of discourse of the Jesus, Jesus' teaching has, has ended, and now Matthew has kind of jumped back in to, to give us kind of his narrative on this. And so these, are, these words are Matthew's record of how those who heard Jesus responded to not only what he said, but to who he was. Not only to what he said. And so Matthew finds it incredibly significant to continually record the response of those who are in proximity to Jesus. I hope we've kind of built that case this morning. That Matthew says, Matthew shows us it's important to know how people have responded to the Christ, to, the, to this Messiah. And so here's in this text, let's read it. Eyes on the book, Matthew, 20, Matthew 7, 28 and 29. And when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. So Matthew here does not really give us a ton of information about what kind of astonishment this was, except that their astonishment seems to be based on the content what Jesus said, and the manner, the person, in which Jesus spoke. They are captivated by what Jesus has declared and how he has declared it. They are astonished at both his teaching and his demeanor and his, maybe his tone. It's almost as if Matthew wants merely to make another matter-of-fact statement that says, hey, people aren't recognizing Jesus as just another ordinary man. He's making sure we, we understand people don't view this person as ordinary man. So let's be historically and, and logically and intellectually honest, at least, that the way that the Bible presents Jesus is as the king, as the Messiah, as the one who we have waited for. And so, if, again, we are going to be intellectually honest with ourselves. That's how the Bible presents who Jesus is. And so... At this point, we have dove deeply into the words of Jesus. We have, we have dug but only scratched the surface of what Jesus has to say. And this is how Matthew leaves us. This is how Matthew leaves us as the reader. Almost as if we are faced with a similar decision to respond to Christ. Almost as if we are left. It's almost just, remember when we preached the book of Jonah? Um, you probably don't. I don't, I don't either. Um, we, we preached the book of Jonah sometime in the past. Don't even remember when that really was. It just kind of ends on a cliffhanger. It's like, what? wait a second. Like, I got kind of all wound up with, like, the Ninevites and, you know, Jonah and, 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 and all these different figures, and then it just kind of ends. Well, Matthew seems to kind of wrap up his, his narrative on the sermon somewhat in the same way, almost 
as if he's presenting to those that he's writing for and to, how will you respond to Christ? How will you respond to who Jesus is? And so, believe it or not, we are at the very end of what I wanna share today. And it's really just by way of a couple of applications. So the question is, how will we respond? And the first, the first people in the room I wanna address is, is those who are non-believers. Welcome, we're glad that you're here. We really are truly glad. I hope there's more. I hope there are more. This morning we prayed um, as, a, as a group early this morning, literally, and I'm just gonna say this, I've said it before, that we would welcome and um, love absolutely anyone who walks in these doors. Like, you're thinking, okay, but what? No, not, yes, even them. Yes, yeah, those, yeah, those people. Yeah, the ones that just popped in your mind. Even, the, yeah, those. That we would be a place that would show the love and the grace of Jesus to absolutely everyone. If they can't come here to experience the love of Jesus, where will they go? And so that's what we'll do. That's what we'll do. We have our beliefs. We have our convictions. We stand on those things. But we, one of our convictions and beliefs is that we would welcome people and love people and that we would be good examples of Jesus in this way. You know, it's, it's funny. In Luke, uh, Jisms is... Uh, and there's all sorts of whataboutisms and all those things, but one of the, one of the things that happens in, in the book of Luke is the Pharisees at one point say something to the effect of uh, he, he uh, welcomes sinners and dines with them. And if you go to that account, Jesus essentially says in layman's terms, in modern terms, you're, you're right, I do. You're right, I do. And yes, did Jesus call people to repentance? Yes, Jesus called people to turn from those things. Yes, absolutely. Did he say, go and sin no more? Yes, he did those things, but he welcomed them. And they heard what Jesus intended for them to hear. And so that's one thing. I, I digress. But the first group of people that I, that I address is, is non-believers. Whether you're here today or whether you're watching online, you've come across, you wanna hear what all those crazy church people have to say, um, here's, here's an invitation and here's a question. Will you respond to Jesus in the way that Matthew and the writers of the gospels and the apostles who proclaimed him invite those who don't know him ought to respond? Would you respond to Jesus the way that historically people from all walks, tribes, manners of life have responded to Christ in faith? Man, what, a, what an indictment. And maybe that's too strong of a word, but what, a, what an evidence of the, of the power of who Jesus is, that, that someone can be sitting in a chair in, in a country where the gospel is not welcomed and hear the gospel proclaimed on a TV and put their faith in Jesus, right? And, and that's the response that is, that is evoked in a person when they hear with their heart and with their mind, the truth of the gospel. Through all centuries, millennia, people have placed their faith in Christ. And, and, and it's not like they just started doing that at some random time. No, Matthew presents Jesus to us in that way. Pagans responded to Jesus in a way. Gentiles responded to Jesus in a way. God the Father himself, the one that we claim as sovereign over all things, responded to Jesus in a particular way. And so the invitation is that you would trust Christ as your savior, that he would be the savior of your sin, the only one who can deliver you from sins. There is only one name by which we are saved, and that's Jesus. So we here 
um, the God of the Bible, we are completely unconcerned with Jesus merely as a philosophy or as an outlook on life. Unconcerned with it. And that's not an, that's not an impediment to our faith. Rather, what we are concerned with Jesus is, is the only Son of God who has entered into this world to be the Savior of all who would trust in his name. And so what Matthew shows us here in, in 728 is that astonishment with Jesus is no replacement for faith in Jesus. So we, at least, we can at least make that observation. Matthew doesn't say that people place their faith in him, does it? Now, I, I, don't, know that, I don't know that that's an argument from silence either. Maybe some did. But what we need to know is that mere astonishment is no replacement for faith in what Christ has done. Just being interested or intrigued or, oh, that's, that sounds good. I mean, you know how C.S. Lewis said it. And, and I know there's a lot of people who've critiqued this even in the past, but Jesus is either a liar, he's a lunatic, or he's Lord. He's, he's, he's one of those three things. He's either, he's either just flat out lying and the Bible is lying He's, he's crazy and, and, and belongs in a, in a facility, or maybe he is actually who he says that he is. And so astonishment is no replacement for faith. And so not only to the non-believers, to the believers, I have a, a question for you. This text leaves us with a, with a question, with a place to consider and ponder. Believers, are you, based on what Jesus has just said and the things that he has delivered, are you walking in obedience to Christ? Are you walking in obedience to Jesus? Again, the response of the earliest audiences of Jesus and the earliest believers in in Jesus as their Savior through the church in Acts, the churches to whom Paul, John, and James wrote letters, the response that they had was obedience to him. We're going to follow and obey Jesus as people who have been saved by him. And so as we said last week, that we'll, we'll make very clear, both Paul and James make clear their position that we obey and we teach the teachings of Christ. So if for the non-believer, astonishment is no replacement for faith, then fanaticism is no replacement for obedience for believers. And, and that's, that's, what a lot, that's what a lot of our, our modern culture is. As followers of Jesus is mere fanaticism. Like, like you realize that uh, one of the ways that a pastor that I follow says is like, hey, um, I can't remember how he says it, but, but either church or faith is, is not a good hobby. <laughs> it's, it's not a, it's, it makes for a pretty lousy hobby. If this is just a hobby for you, can I just say, just, man, go to the lake. It's, it's, it's like the, it's the season for the woods right now. Go to the woods. Church, is, church does not make a good hobby. What Jesus calls us into throughout the whole sermon, those are who are his disciples, is a way of following him that will be costly to you, a way that will cause you to sacrifice things that you don't want to sacrifice, relationships even that you wish you did not have to sacrifice. And so believers, fanaticism is no replacement for obedience. And, and this is something we've been talking about. We talked about this even through the sermon of Jesus when we, when we spent some time in 1 John we, that we have a, believers, we have a seriously underdeveloped understanding of fellowship with God. Man, we have a starving, underdeveloped understanding of the fellowship that God wants to have with us. Um, some of that, maybe much of that, is because we are mainly concerned about doing the bare minimum of keeping God happy with us. We just think, 
whatever, you know, whatever I got to do to just kind of keep God like just kind of out here. And, and listen, your salvation from your sins is not only about salvation. It's about fellowship with him. First John, John in his first letter tells us that. He develops for us what a healthy, robust doctrine of fellowship with our Father looks like. God desires to have fellowship with you. And fellowship happens out of a joyful obedience to him because of what he has done for us in his son Jesus as our Savior. Christian, let me just tell you something. If you are a, believe, if you are a Christian, if you are someone who Jesus is your Savior, let me tell you this. God is pleased with you because he is pleased with his son. Now, are there things in your life that God is calling you to abandon that are unhealthy for you? Yes. And you are living in such a way that is robbing fellowship with you, with God. The fellowship that he wants to have with you. It, it doesn't always, like this, this idea that God is pleased with us is, is hard, but it's, it's a very core truth of the gospel. That our salvation rests on who Christ is and what he has done for us. And there may be seasons of disobedience. There may be seasons where we are out of fellowship with, with God. But when God sees us, he sees the righteousness of his son, Jesus. And out of that, we ought to delight in being in fellowship with him. Man, what, what a beautiful thing, right? That out of the love, remember what we've, what we've said before, that we don't, we don't work uh, for salvation. We work from our salvation, we work from a place of being accepted before God in joyful obedience to him. Now, in light of that truth, believers, walk in and pursue fellowship with your father. Believers, it is an act of obedience and fellowship with God to repent of your sins and to agree with God about the things that beset you. So as Jesus says to his disciples in Matthew 7, remember, he's saying this to his disciples which in my mind just blew my mind because for all my life I've thought that he was not saying this to disciples but to people who, who wanted to come into the, king, to, to, to the kingdom of God. And maybe there's, maybe there's some things we can discuss there, but just remember his, his crowd in Matthew 7 is his disciples. And Jesus says this to them, enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many, for the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. So believers, children of God, I don't know what corners you're trying to skip with in your fellowship with God, but Jesus says, enter by the narrow gate. Abandon all the things of the world. Abandon these things, the broad way that you could go on to, to get an easier life. Jesus says, enter by the narrow gate, and he's really honest about what that path will look like. It will be hard. The gate's not only narrow, but the way is hard. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the truth of your word. We thank you that, um, that Jesus is, is one who, who claims to be the son of God and that, and that your word and Jesus himself invites us um, to place our faith in him as our savior and to walk in fellowship with you. So we praise you for that. We praise you for what, you, for what Christ has done 
We praise you, that what, praise you for what you as our Father have done in sending your Son, Jesus, and we thank you for the gift of the Holy Spirit that dwells within us today. So help us, Lord, to walk in fellowship and obedience to you. Help us to, to not only be astonished. Lord, we, are, we, we do confess this morning, we are astonished by, by what you have to say. But Lord, may we move from astonishment to, to a place of, of faith in you um, and fellowship with you. We pray these things in the name of your son, Jesus, amen.